Hello, Relatively Prime listeners. This is your host and producer, Samuel Hansen. And I just wanted to acknowledge the very uncertain and stressful world in which we are all living with the COVID-19 pandemic. Relatively Prime has very, very rarely done anything even mildly topical, and this episode is no different. As a matter of fact, this episode is going to be focusing a couple hundred years in the past. And I hope that it is able to give you some small amount of respite from all of the stress and anxiety that I know that I'm feeling, and I'm sure that all of you are as well. So please just enjoy this little mathematical story. And I wish us all as much safety and comfort as are possible. So now, on to the show. This is Relatively Prime. Somerville's in the mathematical domain. I'm your host, Samuel Hansen. If you could uh, please say your first and last name. Bridget Stenhouse. I'm a PhD student at the Open University in the UK. I spoke with Bridget at the 2020 Joint Mathematics Meetings in Denver, Colorado. Our conversation started with me asking her what it meant to be a mathematician or a scientist in the early 1800s. The idea of having a career as a mathematician was just not not a concept people would really think about. In fact, it was kind of the opposite. You would want to be seen as a gentleman who wasn't reliant on this knowledge and monetizing this knowledge. You wanted to be seen as disinterested because then the knowledge that you're producing is reliable. People aren't like, oh, they're just saying that because they have, they're trying to further their own cause. In other words, the reason you are doing science is not for yourself, it is for the greater good. Very much the comic book superhero version of scientific motivation. And a big part of doing science for the greater good was the sharing of your work. One of the big ways this happened was through different learned societies. While the Royal Society in England hadn't been around since the 1600s, the early 1800s saw a proliferation of subject-specific societies, such as the Royal Astronomical Society and the Royal Geological Society. And the sharing of knowledge was high on their list of priorities. They had very clear aims when they founded these societies. There would be a library, there would be a space where fellows could socialize, exchange ideas, and most of these new societies also decided they would publish transactions of their meetings. So this would be papers and things like that. So we see that people really value face-to-face exchange of knowledge, talking about things. They want to share the new knowledge they have, but also books, papers, and things like that. They want those to be available, especially international collections, because books published abroad would be very expensive. And so if the society just had one copy that the fellows could share. Knowledge was not just shared in these learned societies or via books and articles either. Correspondence was also a huge part of information sharing in the early 1800s. 
This is both because people of science at this time often traveled around the world and needed a way of sharing their observations and discoveries, and because what we would think of as a short car or train ride away today could easily have taken many hours in an uncomfortable, bouncy coach 200 years ago. Actually, I say people of science, but that doesn't really tell the truth of the story of who was and who wasn't allowed to take part in science in the 1800s. It was very class-based and very gender-based. So it, it wasn't just men, it was very much gentlemen. This brings us to the main character for this episode, who does not match these requirements in one very obvious way. For while a member of the landed gentry and therefore gentle, Mary Somerville was no man. Mary Somerville was born in 1780, and she grew up in a place called Burn Island, which is near Edinburgh in Scotland. In her autobiography, Mary Somerville, who Bridget will primarily refer to as just Somerville, wrote of an isolated childhood where her interests were not always supported. Her family certainly did not encourage her to study maths. In fact, they actively discouraged her studies of maths. Not that this checked Mary Somerville's interest in mathematics and science, nor did the lack of support from her scientifically uninterested first husband and second cousin, Samuel Grieg, whom she married in 1804. It was to be a short marriage, though, as Samuel died in 1807. In the years that followed, Mary Somerville began to flex her mathematical muscles. Somerville is starting to be known as a mathematician. She's corresponded a little bit with a man called William Wallace, who was a professor of maths at a military school. And she actually had a few solutions published in a periodical. So they would have, they would ask mathematical questions and readers would submit their answers. And she had, by this point, I think only one solution. And it was published under the pseudonym, A Lady. Again, making sure she had the correct public image right from the start. Then, in 1812, she married again. So she marries her first cousin, William Somerville, and she writes in her autobiography as well, like, oh, who would have thought I would marry the, like, cousin whose mum nursed me as a baby because my mother was too ill? And you're like, is that a good thing that you got married? But that was 19th century landed gentry. Unlike Samuel Grieg, William Somerville was definitely interested in science. By the time the Somervilles get married, he's been an army physician for quite a few years. He worked in South Africa. He worked in Canada. And then while he was in South Africa, he took observations of local plant life, local peoples. I've not read his observations of the local Batlapan people. I'm kind of scared to. Um, but they were published. And so, he, again, he's already quite visibly interested in knowledge of what was at the time called natural history rather than science. Over the years, William will continue to be generally interested in science, but not an active researcher. Mary, on the other hand, will experiment with light, publish a paper in the Transactions of the Royal Society, and in 1831... The work that she's probably most famous for, and which is the most mathematical, was a translation of Pierre-Simon Laplace's Traité de Mécanique Celeste. Um, sorry, French people. Published in five volumes from 1799 to 1825, Laplace's Mécanique Celeste was an incredibly influential and important work, which took differential and integral calculus and applied it to our solar system. 
people in the UK saw this as just far superior to anything that had been produced in the UK for a long time. They wanted to bring this knowledge over, and Somerville wrote one of the five translations at that time. Hers was very well received, and it was used as a textbook at Cambridge, actually, for many, many years. Mary Somerville then pivoted from writing about mathematics to writing surveys of contemporary science. She ended up publishing three more books on a range of scientific topics, as well as an autobiography. Her work was so well-known that even the monarchy was interested in her. She was very well-known in her day. People described her as an eminent mathematician. I mean, even Queen Victoria wrote in her journal about Mary Somerville, and she said that... She was discussing with Lord Melbourne, who was prime minister at the time, and she repeated this myth that is often heard about Mary Somerville, that when she met Laplace in Paris, Laplace said, only you and one other can understand my work, and that other is Miss Fairfax. And Mary Somerville says, that's me, because that was her maiden name. So she was the only person. Um, And sometimes the myth says person, sometimes it's British person, sometimes it's woman. But yeah, this idea that she was one of the only people that could understand his work is quite pervasive, this myth. This all begs the question, how was any of this even possible? If, as mentioned earlier, science in the 1800s was the realm of gentlemen, how did Mary Somerville, a woman, get a seat at the table? Thankfully, Bridget has an idea. Somerville kind of I like to say that she used her husband to make her like the active person, (laughs) but it doesn't sound great. Used may sound more pejorative than what Bridget really means, but there's a certain truth to it. Take as an example the Royal Society. In order to engage, you needed to be a member, but they seem to have rather different rules for different genders. Or to put it more bluntly, there was precisely one gender that was deemed worthy of inclusion. Basically, William Somerville in 1817 was elected a fellow of the Royal Society. And something which is really notable is his certificate says he was elected for his acquirements in mineralogy. Just acquirements. He hasn't done anything new. He's just acquired knowledge. And they're like, that'll do. Whereas Somerville's like recognized as being a very gifted mathematician. Not enough for membership of the Royal Society. Some could say, oh, maybe they valued mineralogy over mathematics. But around this time, at least two people were elected for their requirements in mathematics, or two men were um, elected. So it's definitely the fact that she was a woman. And it is here that we get to the first way in which Mary Somerville needed to rely on William as a representative. Fast forward to 1826, Somerville has done these experiments on light. She discovers that you can magnetize a needle by shining violet light on it. No, that is not correct, but that is what she discovered. And so she wants to publish these results, and she writes a paper, and it's her husband, William Somerville, who reads the paper to the Royal Society. And so when it's published in the Philosophical Transactions, it has her name on it, but underneath it says, read by William Somerville. But because she has this personal connection to a fellow, she she easily gets it read at the Royal Society. It's kind of he's representing her in a space that she just doesn't have physical access to. And it was not just about William being able to share out the work that Mary did. It was also about gathering the information that she needed. There's a letter from a man called William Brodrip. Both he and William Somerville were fellows of the Royal Geological Society. And it sounds like they were at a council meeting. So this is like the meeting of the people who run the society. And William Somerville apparently went, 
Hi, William Brodrup. My wife would like to know these things about Himalayan plants. Will you write to her? And so he does write to Mary Somerville and he says, beyond the things that I was able to tell William in the council meeting, you should read this book. A man called Mr. Knight has a beautiful specimen of a rhododendron, which is found in the Himalayas. You should definitely go and see that while it's in bloom. And so he's recommending texts for her to read and specimens to look at so that she can find out more about what she wanted. Remember that these societies are very central to the scientific enterprise at the time. And think about how hard it would be to be a part of the scientific community if you were systematically barred entry to them. Whereas she couldn't go to these, these spaces designed for scientists to meet each other and to share knowledge, she could send her husband with a to-do list, <laughs> um, which he apparently was more than happy to, to do for her because it happens quite frequently. Beyond happily completing Mary Somerville's society to-do lists, William was also able to play an important role in opening up the world for Mary. Because while women were allowed to travel, they were very much expected to have a chaperone. The Somervilles weren't particularly affluent, but because Somerville had like a ready-made chaperone, William also wanted to travel. He also was interested in meeting these scientific people. And so as soon as they married, they traveled down to Marlow near London. So they had been living in Edinburgh. And Somerville was able to meet William Wallace, the mathematician who she'd been corresponding with um, about her solutions in the periodical. Now meeting William Wallace was cool, but he just pales in comparison to the person that Mary Somerville met when they took a trip to Paris in 1817. Which is when Somerville first meets Laplace and she discusses his work with him. And this is key because his work is the work she's most known for translating. And indeed in 1824, he sends her a copy of his Système du Monde and says that he's flattered that she takes an interest in his work because there's so few other people who are as enlightened as she is. So few other people can judge his work like she can. And also that means she has a copy of his Système du Monde, which is an expensive text. It's hard to buy in the UK when it was written in France. And it turns out that William's role as chaperone was not just about helping Mary travel places. It also played a useful role in helping Mary not go places too. In the 1830s, when she's in Paris, she ends up staying beyond the time that William Somerville stays for quite a few weeks. And later that year, she's invited to a meeting in Edinburgh. And she says, I couldn't possibly go. My husband can't be away from London for that amount of time. So I can't come up to Edinburgh for this meeting. And then the person who's invited her responds saying, oh, but you stayed all those weeks in profligate Paris without your husband. Surely you can come to moral Edinburgh without him. And, but she never went to that meeting. So she apparently disagreed. Not all of William's usefulness as a chaperone had to do with such far-flung places either. Because the societies, the sort of social groups that were formed there, they didn't stay in the buildings of the societies. People would organize dinners and balls. And because William Somerville was able to get an invite, he would obviously bring Mary Somerville along. And then she could make her own personal connections to these people and then ultimately correspond with them directly um, at times. Now, you may think that serving as Mary Somerville's representative and chaperone would have eaten up most of William's time. But according to Bridget, he also found time to be her secretary. Yeah, I purposely chose secretary because um, I just, 
I love it. It's very often when you speak about scientific couples, for example, the Herschels, William Herschel, Caroline Herschel, sort of Caroline is his assistant. And this idea of a woman, like a woman being an assistant to a man. Um, and then obviously secretary is very gendered. So secretary is like kind of purposely inflammatory. But what I mean by secretary is that he mediated a lot of her correspondence. Often people would write to William Somerville with messages for Mary Somerville. If they sent texts, like books or papers, they might send them through William Somerville again. It was kind of a question of propriety. Writing to a married woman as a man was kind of questionable. Um, so they would write to William Somerville until they had permission to write directly to Mary Somerville. But sadly, even a top-notch secretary such as William could not possibly solve all of Mary Somerville's problems with correspondence. One philosopher, Bio, Jean-Baptiste Bio, um, he wrote to William Somerville asking permission to write directly to Mary Somerville. And then he very embarrassedly writes four years later directly to Mary Somerville, being like, I'm really sorry. I know I had permission to write to you. I'm sorry it took so long. Please come and visit me in Paris. There is one problem, though, that having William as secretary definitely helped solve. That of where to send correspondence. Because William was a physician, he worked at the Royal Military Hospital in Chelsea. He had a permanent address. And so um, one scientist, Adolphe Quetelet, he wrote to Mary Somerville, but he addressed his letter to the hospital because he knew that it would reach the Somervilles eventually. And actually this letter specifically, the address is crossed out and another address is written on in pencil because the Somervilles were in their um, rented accommodation in central London for the society season. They weren't staying at the hospital because they wanted to be where all the balls were happening. And this is very frequent. People did move around. They did move up to London for the season. And because Somerville, William Somerville had a profession, he had a permanent professional address, which meant people could address letters to the hospital and they knew that they would eventually reach them, whereas Mary Somerville didn't have that professional address. So again, sort of he's mediating these letters as a secretary would perhaps do. <laughs> there was one final role that William filled for Mary Somerville, that of literary agent once she had begun her career as an author. Um, and William Somerville kind of took charge of all the business-oriented tasks that you need to publish a book. And this was incredibly important, because writing books is really hard work. I mean, after all, even her translation wasn't simply a translation. She does update the work because, I mean, maths moves on very quickly. And by this point, the early volumes are 30 years old. So there is a lot that she can update. And this work of being an author would have been a lot harder to do if she would have had to fill her time liaising with her publishers or finding people to review the books, both of which William did. He also helped Mary fulfill the other side of being a scientific author, reviewing other people's work such as in the case of William Lubbock. He wrote to William Somerville asking if Mary Somerville would check his moon calculations before they were published. Because he's like, oh, you know, addition, it's really hard. It's easy to make mistakes. Will she look over the work? It also seems that these roles as author and literary agent were very important for the liquidity of the Somerville family. There's some evidence that the Somervilles weren't massively... Um, 
cash rich. And so it could be that the reason she started publishing these books is to try and monetize the reputation and the research that she'd done. And William Somerville was a key player in that. While we did joke earlier on about how Mary Somerville used William, their relationship was about much more than just how useful she found him. It definitely seems like they were very much in love. I mean, he died before she did, and she was... I haven't read much around that time, but she like seemed devastated. And she writes incredibly warmly about him, especially compared to how she writes about her first husband. It really does seem that Mary got lucky in finding someone to love who was not only interested in science, but also had progressive views about women. But there was one other thing about William, which was perhaps even luckier for her. He wasn't interested in taking credit. There have been a lot of collaborative couples. I mean, even more recently, Grace Chisholm Young, she collaborated extensively with her husband, but he told her, like, we should publish under my name. The work will be more successful. We'll publish under your name later, later, later. And, like, didn't massively happen. But, yeah, William Sanville had no interest in being the person who was the author, so he was supportive without kind of being overbearing, which is why I really like this case study, because it is Mary Somerville who was the most well-known out of the couple. And it wasn't just William who had progressive thoughts about the scientific abilities of women. What I would say is that Mary Somerville was actually in quite a large community of people who saw women as capable of studying science. So John Herschel, William Wallace was very supportive. And there was and Henry Broom, he founded this thing called the Society for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge. Literacy is becoming much more widespread and people thought that they could improve society by making available texts for everybody to read. They wanted to share this knowledge. They wanted to improve society through diffusing useful knowledge. And they, I feel like they included women in that. There's always gendered aspects of what knowledge you're allowed to know and what knowledge you're allowed to claim expertise in. But Somerville had many people who supported her, and rightly so, because she was, she was great. But don't think for a minute that even though many people supported Mary Somerville in her scientific pursuits, that she wasn't aware of her gender and the roles that she was expected to play because of it. She was very clear in her autobiography as well that she enjoyed painting and she enjoyed conversation and she enjoyed being a mother, she enjoyed being a wife. Um, So it's still very much like, I know I did maths, but don't worry, I'm still a woman. Like still a functioning, reproducing married woman comes across quite clearly. All of which likely played into the win of her mathematical and scientific work. We only have evidence of her mathematics after she's widowed. Because obviously once she's widowed and she's a mother, she has ticked these lady boxes. And there's, she doesn't have to worry about being a spinster. I, it seems like she had a bit of inheritance from that first marriage. So she's got a little bit of monetary independence. And she has begun this correspondence relationship with William Wallace. So ticking that wife box allowed Mary Somerville to publicly expand her interests into mathematics and science. Which made me wonder, how would her life have been different if she had not then married the very supportive and very useful William? So it's unclear how different it would have looked, but it's certainly clear that like she made use of having a supportive husband, quite extensive use of this. She might never have made it out of the UK. The traveling might have looked different. 
and her access to texts would have been very different. So, for example, William Somerville took books out of Royal, the Royal Society Library for her to read when she was preparing a Mechanism of the Heavens and then her second book on the connection of the physical sciences. And maybe she would have just found somebody else to source those texts because the history of women in science is just a history of women doing things differently because they have to, but they kind of get the job done anyway. So this was just the way that she happened to get the job done because of her situation. And while the history of women in science may be of them doing things differently to get the job done, it is important to remember Mary Somerville is not a woman mathematician or a woman scientist. She was a mathematician and a scientist who was a woman. So she was named the queen of 19th century science. And people use that a lot. And I kind of I really want people to understand that she wasn't just special because she was a woman. She was doing incredibly advanced mathematics. She was part of a group of mathematicians who were trying to disseminate and circulate French mathematics, which they saw as superior and they saw as reinvigorating British mathematics, which had stagnated. And so she was just part of a group of mathematicians. So I kind of, I really, when people just use queen of 19th century science, I'm like, she was so much more than that. And so, for example, another thing that was said when she died was one of the most distinguished philosophers and astronomers of our time. And they don't say lady astronomer or lady philosopher. They just say philosopher or astronomer. And often they do just call her a mathematician. And so I really want to emphasize that Obviously, she stood out because she was a woman, but the work that she was doing had importance far beyond just the fact that it was done by a woman. And that is all the time we have for this episode of Relatively Prime. I want to thank my guest, Bridget Stenhouse from The Open University and the MAA and the AMS for the joint mathematics meetings where this interview was recorded. I also want to thank Lowercase N, who made the music that I'm talking over right now. You can find out more about them on their Bandcamp page, lowercasein.bandcamp.com, or the show notes over at relprime.com. I also, also definitely, definitely need to thank my wonderful patrons on Patreon, because without them, this show could not happen. You can find out more about the Patreon over at patreon.com slash or realprime.com slash support. Other than that, I just want to say that this is a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike licensed podcast, so please feel free to remix it as long as you say that you got the original audio from Relatively Prime and you share it in the same way. And that is it. Just a nice short, short credits this time around. Once again, everyone, I hope that you can stay as safe and comfortable as possible during this uncertain time and more than anything else truly more than anything else i hope that you have the most matherific month y'all bye